On the way here to church this morning, you probably saw a lot of signs on the road. Maybe some, some of us pay more attention than some of us. Street signs, thankfully a lot less political signs. Um, advertisements we see. Sometimes we just see them so many times we don't even pay attention anymore. Right? We say, oh, I know what's there. Sometimes, and we say to people, uh, when we're giving directions, if there's a big sign, we say that there's a big sign there. You, you won't be able to miss it. A huge sign out front. Things we say. And then there's plaques, memorials, and such. And they come and go. Right? They fade away. They can be changed. They can be altered or taken away. But there was a placard written by Pontius Pilate that could never be changed. It is a placard that speaks the truth, for it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. First for us this morning, this irreplaceable inscription, this irreplaceable inscription, verse 19, but let's start over, uh, start again in verse 16 to get the context for us. We recall what is taking place here. As we have read the scriptures, uh, and as we have gone to different to the to the other gospels, we've gotten a more complete picture as we've studied this out. And here we are in verse 16. Pilate handed Jesus over to be crucified. And we remember the process that went forth with Pilate, the the religious leaders, the crowd, and then as the religious leaders um, uh, put his, uh, cornered him in and backed him up into uh, against the wall to where he would indeed hand over a man who he said, I find no guilt in him. Numerous times he said this, but then he handed him over to be crucified. And in verse 17, they took Jesus, therefore, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of a skull, which in Hebrew, which called in Hebrew Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two other men, one on either side and Jesus in between. And we recall that on this road to his crucifixion, to the cross, uh, Simon of Cyrene was ushered in by the Roman soldiers to carry the cross for Jesus. And then Jesus addressed the uh, daughters of Jerusalem, and we recall what he said to them. And then there was a large crowd that followed Jesus. So there were a number of people who heard what Jesus said. And in his suffering, after he had been scourged and marred beyond recognition of man, he still was concerned with the souls of those around him. And he proclaimed the word of God. And then we find um, what Pilate says here, what he writes down, this irreplaceable inscription. Pilate, Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross it was written, Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews. Once again, we see God's sovereignty on display, even in the death of Jesus on the cross. The fact of Jesus' kingship was written on a placard and placed upon the cross where Jesus was crucified. And this is the practice that the Romans had. Someone who committed a crime or allegedly committed a crime and they were sentenced to death, the offender had a tablet or a placard that would be shown to the crowd. And on that placard, it would be written on there their crimes, what they did, 
to be uh, crucified. So this was indeed with Jesus as well and paraded in front of him on his way to be crucified as he carried his cross and as Simon was ushered in to indeed assist in that. Pilate, the one who interrogated Jesus, and then he's the one who decided what was written on the tablet. We recall in verse 14 and 15, uh, Pilate said to the crowd, Behold your king. And then he says to them again, Shall I crucify your king? And they threatened Pilate, put him in the corner. He knew it. It was because of envy that they wanted him crucified. And that's what the scripture tells us. So here he was having his way, possibly, of getting back with them, at them, with what would be written on the cross where Jesus was crucified. We find that, Jesus, that John rather stresses the kingship of Jesus, his royalty even now. John does not want us to miss this or forget that fact of Jesus' kingship. And we see this in the book of Revelation as well, which John wrote. Therefore, many of the Jews, verse 20, many of the Jews read the inscription for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. And it was written in Hebrew, Latin, and in Greek. Some translations may say Aramaic, which Aramaic is ancient Hebrew, but scholars go back and forth with it. But it was Hebrew of some sort, Latin, and Greek. It's pretty incredible that John Calvin says, but in the providence of God, which guided the pen of Pilate, had a higher object in view. It did not indeed occur to Pilate to celebrate Christ as the author of salvation and the Nazarene of God and the king of a chosen people. But God dictated to him this commendation of the gospel, though he knew not the meaning of what he wrote. It was the same secret guidance of the Spirit that caused the title to be published in three languages. For it is not probable that this was an ordinary practice, but the Lord showed in, by this preparatory arrangement that the time was now at hand, when the name of his Son should be made known throughout the whole earth. And here is where it starts, in three languages. Hebrew, uh, the language of God's revelation, or the language of the people. Latin, the language of power, and it was the official language. And then the language of Greek, language of wisdom, or the common language throughout the world at that time. Now, some who would see this placard that were there that came to visit could read all three, in all three languages. They were trilingual. Some, maybe two out of three. Um, but it was common. Now, I was having a conversation with a young man the other day. We're talking about uh, have being bilingual in the United States. Usually, uh, it's not impressed too much upon us to learn other languages in our culture. It hasn't been historically because we don't live in a place that's tightened in necessarily with other countries, that we have to be trilingual or bilingual. It doesn't come naturally to us. But still, and some learn languages more easily than others. And then there's the the myth, or maybe it's true, that if you get to a certain age, you can't learn another language. I say we continue to try no matter what, especially reading it, Greek and Hebrew. Imagine that if you, oh, you get to the age of 40 and you can't uh, learn this anymore. What would you do? 
Anyway, we press on with these things. Matthew Henry says, in each of these languages, Christ is proclaimed king, in whom are hid all the treasures of revelation, wisdom, and power. Many of the Jews read this inscription. There was a crowd present when Pilate spoke to the people at Gabbatha, the judgment seat. There was a crowd there, remember, crucify, crucify, or crucify, crucify, the, the, the leader said, and then crucify him, crucify him, the crowd said. So they were there. They, they, they heard these things. Then there was others as well who came to see this execution, which was popular then. It was popular to go see executions. We know now, even when we have executions in this country, there will be attendance of people who will watch these executions for whatever reason it is, but more so when there were crucifixions. People uh, wanted to see this, or at least a portion of it. And the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city. So this allowed multitudes at this time of the Passover, multitudes of people there near the city. They could go out of the city. They could, they could go see the crucifixion and see this placard written and those coming by as well. The multitude of people written in three languages access to see what was written. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. All of the other gospel writers include this in their accounts. I'll just read this for us. Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Matthew first, 27 verse 37. And above his head they put up the charge against him which read, This is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Mark 15 says, The ascription of the charge against him read, The king of the Jews. Luke 23 verse 38 Now, there was also an inscription written above him, this is the king of the Jews. John is the one that tells us that it was written in three languages. A.W. Pink suggests that Matthew most likely translated the Hebrew, Luke the Greek, and Mark and John the Latin. Well, this is a possibility, but it, it seems that simply each of the writers gave a portion of what was written. If we look at the complete statement with the gospel writers all including it, it would say, this is, which was translated by Matthew and Luke, Jesus, which was given by Matthew and John, of Nazareth, added by John alone, the king of the Jews, provided by all four writers. So taking a portion of it, and they wrote it down. Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. John's intention, it seems, as always, was to go beyond just the statement. John the evangelist, he was an eyewitness of many of these events. As James Boyce points out, John is actually declaring that Jesus is a king for everyone. Not merely a Jewish savior, though he is that, He is also the Savior of the Greeks and the Romans as well. He is Savior savior of the world. So we have this irreplaceable inscription, what was written, true statement, who Jesus is. Secondly, it's simply stated. It's simply stated, and we see this throughout the gospel. We're going to take a brief survey as we go through the gospel, and we think of Jesus, who he is as Savior of the world. It begins in the opening of uh, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 9 through 12. 
I invite you to turn there because we're going to be going to chapter 1, chapter 3, chapter 4, chapter 6, 8, and following really quickly. It's good to hear the pages turning. We're going to chapter 1, simply stated who Jesus is. John the Evangelist. Chapter 1, verse 9 through 12. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him. And the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become the children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. The sovereignty of God in salvation. He is indeed Savior to those. All have rejected Jesus, but God has chosen from that great number of those who have rejected him a people, Jew and Gentile, to be the children of God. Born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. John the Baptist has something to say. In chapter 1, we're still there, verse uh, 29. The next day he saw Jesus coming to him, and he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. John the Baptist saw him, and he knew that. He knew that the gospel was not just for the Jew, but was for the Gentile as well. He could have said, uh, one who takes away the sin of, of Israel alone, or sin of Jewish people alone. But John recognized, the Baptist recognized the universal scope of Christ's mission, Indeed, the Savior of the world, as many would come to the Lamb of God, would be saved. Jesus the Nazarene, the King of the Jews, the Savior of the world. John opens up the gospel with this emphasis. John the Baptist recognized it, and he preached it. Jesus emphasized the absolute necessity of being born again. Look at chapter 3. We know this account. We're familiar with it, at least, when Jesus speaks, speaks with Nicodemus a Pharisee who came to him by night to speak to Jesus. Look at verse 2. We're just going to kind of go through a few of these verses here. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? He cannot enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born, born can he? Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one, one is born of the water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter to the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Do not be amazed that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it. But do you not know where it comes from, where it is going? So everyone who is born of the Spirit. Nicodemus said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said to him, are you the teacher of Israel and do not understand these things? So Jesus confronted him on that. Go to verse 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. 
For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. He who believes in him is not judged. He who does not believe has been judged already, because he has not believed in the name of the begotten Son of God. And this is the judgment. Light has come into the world, and men love the darkness rather than the light, for their deeds were evil. Go to chapter 4. <clears throat> the woman of Samaria. The woman of Samaria. Now, we won't read the whole account here because it's quite lengthy, but I encourage you to do so. The point is that Jesus went beyond what any Jewish person would consider, reaching out to a Samaritan and reaching out to a Samaritan woman. That was a big no-no to them. You don't do that. But Jesus, his point was this woman needed to hear the gospel, so he witnessed to her. And he pointed out her sin by way of catechism, by way of conversation. Notice verse 16. He said to her, go and call your husband to come here. The woman answered and said, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you have correctly said, I have no husband. You've had five husbands and the one who you, who you have now is not your husband. This you have said truly. And of course she says, you are a prophet. Jesus pointed out her sin. And then we go further down, and he says, verse 26, Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he, claiming to be the Messiah, saying who he was. So what did the woman do? Verse 20, and of course we are fast-forwarding a bit, going through these things rather quickly. But the woman left her water pot and went into the city and said to the men, Come and see a man who told me all the things I have done. Is this not the Christ, is it? Here's a man, Jesus, who pointed out her sin, and she leaves her water pot and goes, tells everybody. This man told me about my sin. What I have done. This is not Christ, is it, she says. Of course, the disciples, they show up, and they're suspicious. Why is he talking to her? Looking down on her, Jesus did not. Jesus was concerned for her soul. Look at verse 39. <clears throat> From that city, many of the Samaritans believed in him because of the word the woman, the word of the woman who testified. He told me all the things I have done. So she went out evangelizing, saying, This Jesus told me about my sin, told me about the things I have done. This is the Christ. So when the Samaritans came to Jesus, they were asking him to stay with them. And he stayed there two days, something uh, else uh, Jewish people did not do during that period of time. Many more believed because of his word. And they were saying to the woman, it's no longer because of what you said we believe, for we have heard for ourselves and know that this one is indeed the Savior of the world. Again, this, this woman did not say, hey, I want you to meet someone who told me that I can have my best life now, or someone who told me that I, I am to invite him into my heart. No, this is the one who exposed my sin to me. He was loving enough to tell her the truth. And by God's grace, she responded. And others, the multitude of the Samaritans, were affected as well. Chapter 6. The bread of life. Verse 32 through 35. Again, the context being the manna, Jesus using that and explaining to them who he is. 
in verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, it is not Moses who has given you the bread out of heaven, but it is my Father who gives you the true bread of heaven. For the bread of God is that which comes down out of heaven and gives life into the world. They said to him, Lord, always give us this bread. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will not hunger, and he who believes will never thirst. And indeed, chapter 8, quickly, chapter 8, verse 12. Jesus again spoke to them, saying, I am the light of the what? Of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. And in chapter 10, Jesus, the good shepherd, one flock, verse 16. I have other sheep, he says, which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. And then, of course, in chapter 11, the words of Caiaphas. Remember Caiaphas? We heard of him not too long ago, and here he was a little earlier. Doing the same kind of things he was doing then. He's doing now, words of Caiaphas, verse forty. Seven, they were saying, the chief priests and the Pharisees, chapter 11, Pharisees convened a council. They were saying, what are we doing for this man is performing many signs? And they were interrogating, or they were going back and forth. And then Caiaphas says, verse 49, you know nothing at all, nor do you take an account that it is expedient for you that one man die for the people and the whole nation not perish. Now, he did not say this on his own initiative, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus was going to die for the nation. And not for the nation only, but in order that he might also gather together into one the children of God who were scattered abroad. Okay, so we see this again and again. Last one for us. Second to last one for us, chapter 12. We remember that the Greeks were coming to see Jesus. Look at chapter 12, verse 20. Remember this verse? Now, there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethesda, Bethesda, sorry, of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, my mind is going everywhere at this point. Sir, he didn't say that, I did. Sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and said, and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. And Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. And verse 46 I have come as light into the world so that everyone who believes in me will not remain in darkness. So the point of it is, we have this irreplaceable inscription thus far, and we have it simply stated who Jesus is. The universal scope of the gospel. What was meant for evil, God used for good. Pilate's stubbornness used as he had Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews, written in three languages. The word would spread, the truth would spread to all nations. All nations. So thirdly, we have a culture in confusion. 
Thirdly, we have now a culture in confusion. A message that continues to be spread now throughout the gospel proclamation across the world. Consider some statistics from Heart Cry Missionary Society as of 2023. I'm going to give you a few statistics here. China, population 1.4 billion people. It's a lot of people. 1.4 billion. Largest religion, non-religious. Percent of evangelicals there, approximately 7%. India, population 1.4 billion. Largest religion, Hindu. Percent of evangelical is unknown. Japan, population 123 million. Largest religion, Buddhism. Uh, evangelical, approximately 1%. Israel, population of 9.1 million. Largest religion, uh, ethnic religions. And percent of evangelical, 1%. U.S. population is 335 million. This is not heart cries. These are my own research here of the population of the United States of America. Largest religion, I, I put self. According to NPR, religious nuns, not nuns as in a Catholic nun, nun, N-O-N-E-S, religious nuns are largest now. When Americans are able, or excuse me, are asked to check a box indicating their religious affiliation, 28% now say none and check that off. In 2007, it was 16%. So that's almost double. So indeed, we have a confused and misguided culture that we live in. We have Pilate here. Now, follow me through this. We have, follow me, follow along with me. We have Pilate, who is obviously not a Christian. God uses to put a statement out of truth. It is written in three languages. It is a placard that will never change. Jesus is the king. And we have all of these other uh, people who were there at the crucifixion. Some got converted. The message was clear. But we live in a culture of confusion. I'll give you an example. Jordan Peterson. Some of you may have heard that name before. Some of you may listen to some of his teachings. Last week, he drew thousands of people to the um, SNU arena in Manchester. The title of his tour is called We Who Wrestle with God. The problem is Dr. Peterson is not a Christian. The other problem is you cannot wrestle with a God you do not know. You can only know God through his son Jesus Christ. Well, people object. Well, he uses scripture. Well, so does the devil. He is influencing young men specifically to think, which is good, and to dress well, which is good as well. But he is not a Christian, and he's not leading men to Jesus Christ. He's a brilliant thinker. I'll give you examples of some of his quotes. He says this, the passion story isn't the death of Christ, it's the resurrection of Christ. Even though it's a catastrophically tragic story, it is a comedy. 
A comedy is a story with a happy ending. The comedic part is the spirit resurrects. But it's a strange story because the resurrection of the spirit is dependent on the descent into the abyss. And I think that's right. I think that's true. You know perfectly well that when you make a most radical transformation in your life, it's because you've confronted something extraordinarily difficult and it tore you apart in some real sense. But you did that successfully and then you reemerged. I'll give you another quote, he says. You do not have to face the reality of unjust suffering and death in your life. You don't just have to face that reality. You have to face the reality of hell, he says. And you might say, well, I don't believe in hell. Well, do you believe in Nazi Germany? Do you believe in the Stalinist Soviet Union or Maoist China or Cambodia? That is hell, he says. You could assess that more deeply. You could say, well, that's not a precise a formulation of hell. You might be able to conceptualize. Hell is actually participation in the process that led to the establishment of those countries. Maybe that's even worse than death. And I think you can make a case for that. I really do, end quote. Again, this is a man who is influencing people, professing Christians, and maybe some Christians as well are given ear. In contrast, and I say this because biblical evangelism needs to happen. In contrast, four of us went to this event, passed out about 700 tracts, engaged people in conversation, and I was able to preach to an attentive audience of about 100 for about 10 minutes. Why? Because God was on their mind going in. Some God in their imagination, at least. I don't know, maybe a few thousand people went in there. It's quite comical. Maybe a third of them men, maybe more, were dressed in suits. Young men, old men. We were there to present... proclaim the true God to lost people and false converts. Now listen, if an an agnostic, a a quote-unquote atheist, or a religious person, a professing Christian can go and listen to a man give them a pep talk while using some scripture and not be offended and all enjoy it together, there is a problem. So there is one individual who is influencing our culture with Scripture. Then we have Super Bowl 2024. We have this ad that's returning that he gets us, speaking of Jesus, where the goal is to rebrand Jesus. Halftime performer... Famously wealthy R&B artist named Usher, professing Christian. Faith keeps him centered, he says. My Lord and my Savior, Jesus Christ, has kept me grounded. He gives thanks to God during performances and generally praises God on social media by posting scripture. So his 10 to 15 minutes performance at halftime, which no Christian generally should be watching, if this is indeed true, should be the 10 and most 15 minutes of the best, purest TV you could ever watch since he's been a Christian since a child. Then we also have this, a woman who is very influential, influential to young women who will be attending the Super Bowl, who's gained a lot of attention, who combated verbally 
a decision that was made having to do with abortion, which she was against it. She says, quote unquote, I live in Tennessee. I am a Christian. That's not what we stand for. Her name is Taylor Swift. Her pro-LGBT, pro-choice brand of Christianity, she says, is the real Christianity. She says, I mean, obviously, I am pro-choice. I can't believe we're here. It's really shocking and awful. And I just want to do everything I can for 2020. This was before. I want to figure out exactly how I can help. So we have a man who's not a Christian handling the Word of God. And people going in, one guy even asked me, do you think he's a secret Christian? And we laugh, but Jordan Peterson is more evangelical than many of us. And he's not even a Christian. So we have this, uh, a man influencing minds who's not a Christian with the word of God. We have a woman who's influencing the minds of young women, specifically multitudes, who says she's a Christian. And then we have a halftime show of an RV artist, wealthy, well-known for many years, who says he's a Christian. No wonder the culture is confused and misguided. We should not rely on the tongues of men, as, such as Jordan Peterson, who do not know God to teach us the things about God. For us to heed such things and to listen to such things that he would say about God when he does not know God is foolishness. Why would we do that? Jesus, the King of the Jews, written on a placard for all to see, for indeed he has offered to all who would come to him, Jew or Gentile. Why not spend that 20 million or however many million dollars it is for an ad from a professing Christian establishment and preach the word of God in an advertisement during the Super Bowl when millions and millions are watching? Instead of trying to rebrand Jesus. Romans chapter 2, verse 11 tells us, For there is no partiality with God. Paul writes it for our theological understanding. John presents this truth for our practical understanding. He offers salvation to as many who would receive him. As many who would receive him. James Boyce again, he says, He saves the thief on the cross as well as the centurion who commanded the execution party. Think of that. The thief on the cross, remember? Who got, who got converted, we, we covered that. And the centurion, as Boyce says, who commanded the ex execution party. He was there too, after Jesus was crucified, and he gets converted. Boyce continues, he proclaims his grace to the high and low, the rich and poor, the intellectual, and the ignoramus, and so on. The placard there, visible, three languages, unequivocally clear who this man was. Jesus the Nazarene, the king of the Jews. We do not need other to consider cleverly devised tales. We do not need philosophies to debate philosophers. We need to know the word of God and to proclaim it. <clears throat> Think of this placard that was above Jesus, that is above criminals that were crucified, 
And it was clear who this man was, who Jesus was, the God-man. Every criminal, every lawbreaker would have that placard. Well, we have a placard as well that we carry with us. Our placard, it is written, as it were, lawbreaker, violator of God's holy law. If we were to carry around our placard, we would have the Ten Commandments written on it. And it would say, lawbreaker, violator of all of these, here I stand. For the Lord says, you shall have no other gods before me. Guilty. You shall not make for yourself an idol. Guilty. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Guilty. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Guilty. Honor your father and your mother. Guilty. You shall not murder. Guilty. You shall not commit adultery. Guilty. You shall not steal. Guilty. You shall not bear false witness. Guilty. You shall not covet. Guilty. Lawbreakers. All of us. Our placard, holy lawbreaker, a certificate of debt against us. Our sentence, death. Our crime breaking God's holy law. Yet, dear Christian, Paul tells us in Colossians chapter 2, verse 13 and 14, he, being Jesus, made you alive together, or God made you alive with him, with Christ, having forgiven us all of our transgressions, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, canceling out that placard we would carry as a holy lawbreaker. He has taken it out of the way having nailed it to that cross. We have redemption and reconciliation. We were living lawbreakers, and we have redemption and reconciliation. Paul, in this verse, was using the image of the placard placed above the criminal on the cross and says, that was you, and that was me. And that was him, Paul as well. Yet he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. As Conrad Mbewe says, we deserve death, wrath, and hell forever. Jesus took our liability, and God crushed him. Jesus drank our hell. This redemption and reconciliation, ransomed, redeemed, paid in full, and reconciled back to God the Father. So we see verse 21 and 22, chapter 19. The chief priests of the Jews were saying to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but that he said, I am king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I have written, I have written. Calvin again says, the chief priests and the Jews said this to Pilate. They, they feel that they are sharply rebuked and therefore that they wish that the title were changed. 
so as not to involve the nation in disgrace, but to throw the whole blame on Christ. But yet they do not conceal their deep hatred of the truth, since the smallest spark of it is more than they are able to endure. Thus Satan always prompts his servant to endeavor to extinguish, or at least to choke by their own darkness the light of God, as soon as the feeblest ray of it appears. John Calvin speaks of this smallest spark. Let it be that a smallest spark would be within us and would be around us and it would start a fire of revival in this place where we live. Chief priests saw the placard. They wanted it changed. They did not want the truth They wanted to avoid the truth. As famously stated at one point, you can't handle the truth. They hated Jesus even in his death. Their true colors continued to to shine through. And so did Pilate's. He's no hero. He did not have the courage to do what is right with Jesus. And here it seems likely that he was taking a further dig at the chief priests and the Jewish people. Little did he know that how this statement would be used and how true it was. So when it comes to how people handle Jesus Christ, it shows who people really are. As those who may even be well-meaning, who do not know Christ and want to use the Bible in their illustrations and want to teach some of it, But when you get down to who Jesus is, that tells you who that person really is. The cross always shows who men really are. Everyone in the crowd, the soldiers, the disciples, the daughters of Jerusalem, Simon of Cyrene, the two criminals, the chief priests, Pilate, and you and me, everyone had to deal with the crucified king. There's no ignoring the crucified king. The cross shows who you really are. How are you responding to Jesus? Have you been saved by the blood of the crucified one? I remembered this hymn when I was thinking of this hymn, I believe it was yesterday, I had what I call a mini revival in my heart. We sang it. I'm going to read a portion of it again. Think about these words. Is this something we really sing? Saved by the blood of the crucified one, now ransomed from sin and a new work begun. Sing praise to the Father and praise to the Son, saved by the blood of the crucified one. Glory, I am saved. Glory, I am saved. My sins all, all, all pardoned, my guilt is all gone. Glory, I'm saved. Glory, I am saved. I'm saved by the blood of the crucified one. Is that your heart song this morning? Saved by the blood of the crucified one, all hail to the Father, hail to the Son, all hail to the Spirit, the great three in one, saved by the blood of the crucified one. Let us pray.
God, we ask that that would indeed be our heart's cry and that we would have glory, hallelujah, singing in our hearts, under, under our breath, passion for Jesus because what you have done in our hearts, saved by the blood of the crucified one, we ask, God, that everyone in here could say that and sing that because that has happened to them at this moment at this time. That they would wait no longer. Lord, before it's too late, save lost sinners in our midst, we pray. We ask that you would impress these things upon our hearts today, this irreplaceable inscription, Jesus Christ is King. So simply stated is the gospel that he is Savior to the world for as many who would come to him. Let us remember that, that we are entrusted with the gospel, that we would go and proclaim it. We live in a culture of confusion. Let us take heed how we listen and who we listen to. We were living lawbreakers, but you have redeemed us, those who are born again, who you have called. You have redeemed us and you have reconciled us back to God. Oh, God, we, we praise your, your holy, precious name today. In Jesus' name, amen.